A week after the blast tore through Beirut, the city held a ceremony in which people gathered to pay tribute to the at least 171 dead and 6,000 wounded. Church bells tolled in unison with the call to prayer as it echoed across the port. The mood was sombre, but along with grief, the people of Lebanon felt another powerful emotion. I'm very furious, I'm enraged, I'm angry, I'm sad, uh, I'm hopeless. I'm here to pay my respects to those who've fallen, and uh, I know I'm not alone in feeling this way, and uh, hopefully, hopefully there are better days ahead. A lot of anger, sadness, no words. I think I can kill. I feel for all my friends who been through it, who lost people they love. It's a disaster. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, James Haynes-Young. And this week, we'll listen to the stories of those affected by the Beirut explosion and ask what they want for the future of Lebanon. Bassem Zaza, 46, is a reporter with The National in Beirut. I was inside the TV room sitting with my dad. When the building started shaking, I jumped out to the balcony. And then uh, the balcony was also shaking at a stronger pace. It felt like a very strong earthquake. It took me around 30 seconds to realize that it was an explosion because I've, I've survived civil war, I've survived uh, the, the, the Israeli invasion, I've, I've even survived a missile attack. The sounds were a bit similar to, to, to a missile attack. So uh, it took me like 30 seconds to 45 seconds to realize it was an explosion, but it was definitely beyond any description. Initially, it was just like everybody felt. If the only person present with me in the room was my father, and uh, both of us, uh, we could feel that it was like an earthquake. The minute it started giving that very, very, very loud and unprecedented boom sound, uh, we realized it was uh, an attack or an explosion because it reminded me of the unfortunate days of, of the civil war and bombardment and invasions that we suffered of during the 70s, 80s period. Zina Malas is a student of media communications at the American University of Beirut. The 19-year-old was in the vibrant area of Marmakal when the blast occurred. Marmakal is an area just near the port. It's a neighbourhood like many across capitals around the world. It's full of bars, clubs, boutiques and galleries. There are colourful murals painted on the walls and a lively buzz of students, tourists and young professionals. The area is full of buildings that date back to the French colonial period and there were complaints of gentrification. Zina remembers the excitement it offered to her and her friends. As a teenager, at like 15, 16, I remember I'd always go there with my friends and we'd have dinner and we'd love the neighbourhood so much because it made us feel like we're actual adults while we're still minors. The food there was amazing. I mean, the food in Lebanon is amazing just in general. And the overall atmosphere has always seemed so interesting and attractive because everyone was just constantly happy and dancing on the streets and music and drinks and cars. And it was always so busy and lively. So I think that this was really appealing. And if someone were to ask me about Beirut, this is what I tell them. I tell them about Marim Khair and Jamaizeh. 
and she recalls the confusion and chaos that followed the blast. So we were in my car and the street was really busy. There was traffic, people were going back home. And then suddenly the ground started shaking and the, and like the stores started, I don't know, I, I feel like they started moving, like the windows were shaking and people stopped walking and people stopped driving as well because we were hearing a noise that was really loud and we thought that it was a plane that was flying right above the street, which was very weird because the airport is actually um, on the other side of the city. So everyone stopped driving and we were looking at the sky, wondering what was happening. People thought it was an earthquake, others thought it was a plane. And this entire thing lasted for like 10 or 15 seconds. Meanwhile, the sky was turning orange because of the fireworks and because of all the fumes that it was releasing. And then suddenly the explosion happened. I remember we ducked down so that to protect ourselves and like as a reflex. And then when we looked up, the street was covered in glass and it was very, very dusty because of everything that had fallen down or that was destroyed. And it was just people running around and crying and blood and there were, there were people dying on the streets and no one really knew what was happening. And the initial thought, the, like, our initial thought was that, oh, this is an attack on the country. And then others thought that something had exploded. And then there were all these things happening at the same time in the panic itself. And then eventually we realised that there was an explosion in the port. Marianne Samaha was on the phone with a friend when it happened. She's the programme director for an aid agency, Plan International, and she describes how her instincts immediately kicked in. I thought that um, there was an earthquake or I I was very confused. um, And at the same time, I had a colleague actually call me when I was in a car and she was also around the area where I was. And she also uh, experienced the same thing. And we were both wondering what it was and what we needed to do then. Was it an earthquake? Was it an explosion? We weren't really sure. Uh, But I think the first thing that came to my mind was that we needed to go back to the apartment and be somewhere that was safe. The apartment, unlike maybe other apartments uh, in the area, um, the apartment is not completely damaged or completely destroyed, destroyed, but um, the glass, um, most of the glass in the apartment has fallen off. So uh, the balcony's glass, um, the glass from the kitchen, the bathrooms, uh, the living room, um, most of it is gone now. Lebanon has had more than its share of challenges. The country was in a state of crisis even before the blast. So this blast comes basically at a time when Lebanon was already facing the biggest economic crisis in in its history. It has, the crisis has already led two thirds of its, uh, of, of Lebanon's households losing income. Um, Health, education and other vital services were already under huge strain. Um, so I think the situation was quite dire before the blast happened. And now after the explosion, uh, obviously things are much, much worse and particularly in, in Beirut. And Marianne and her colleagues set to work quickly. We mapped out some key activities that we thought were quite urgent, at least for the coming uh, two weeks. These activities include, uh, first, obviously, responding to the basic needs of people. Uh, PLAN is a humanitarian and development organization that has a focus on children's rights and equality for girls. 
but this time we felt that we needed to start with some basic needs for families. Uh, namely, I would say we're working with our partners to distribute food kits. Uh, we are also working with our partners to distribute hygiene kits, in addition to working with children. But it wasn't just aid agencies that sprang into action after the blast. The day after the explosion, Beirut saw citizens cleaning the streets and helping their communities. Zina was one of those people. So the event happened uh, late afternoon on the 4th. The 5th in the morning, everyone was uh, on the streets just with their brooms and with their whatever it was that they had as tools, gloves, masks. And everyone was just cleaning the streets. Uh, personally, I took, I had a broom and I started cleaning the streets, removing pieces of rocks or um, glasses or everything. Honestly, we just picked everything off the street and and helped clean everything out because it was a complete, complete disaster. And then gradually, once we finished cleaning the streets, we actually turned towards families and started interviewing families to check what they might need, to see how severe the damages were, to try to understand how we could help them. And for the past two or three days, I think, we've been just collecting household items such as food or clothes or um, medicine or anything and then we put them in boxes and distribute them to those in need and gradually I think NGOs are, are developing a more strategic plan to be able to help the country even more. The blast has concentrated the efforts of volunteers on immediate solutions for those in need. I think the most common item actually was um, medicine because here we don't really have social security and and insurance or like health insurance is really really expensive here so many many people cannot afford it and could can therefore not really afford their medicine so almost every house to which we've been um, they requested really basic medicine actually it wasn't really something it wasn't like the intense kind of medicine it was like panadol and then solpadine and just like really, really generic uh, medicine. And they, this was really the only thing that they'd request mostly, or like um, hygienic pads or, or diapers, but it was never really food or clothes. They just needed medicine. For Marianne, her focus has been on helping those that she sees as most vulnerable. <laughs> So children are the most affected by this crisis. The latest figures show that three children have died as a result of the explosion, and there are uh, numerous children that are in hospitals at the moment uh, that are still injured. Uh, We have seen that around 120 schools have been affected as well. Uh, So this, this puts children at risk of dropping out of school next year. The risk was already there because of the economic crisis, and now it's going to be even harder for them to go back to school uh, if nothing is done regarding that. So we can also add the um, psychological trauma that children have experienced. Children will bear the scars of what they have witnessed for a very long time, and they will need psychosocial support over the coming weeks and months in order to cope with this. 
Many may have lost family or seen their homes destroyed. Uh, they might have seen also um, images of violence, even on television or in the streets. So children overall are very vulnerable at the moment to uh, PTSD or, or anxiety. We also have a particular concern for children who have been separated from their families. Um, some parents are still at the hospital. Some children have lost their parents, unfortunately, in the explosion. So this could leave many uh, children, particularly adolescent girls, for example, vulnerable to exploitation or gender-based violence. Along with the psychological impact, aid workers are organizing basic shelters for the people around the city. So uh, I think primary figures uh, from the government showed that around 300,000 individuals are now homeless. The latest figure also says that 80,000 families have lost their homes or had their homes affected, actually. I think that there's a lot of solidarity in Lebanon. So a lot of the families who have had their homes damaged or destroyed are now staying over at other family members' uh, apartments or houses. They are either also, they can also be staying at uh, some friends' apartments or houses. There has been some shelters that were established, temporary shelters, obviously, for uh, some families. A lot of NGOs have also opened their doors uh, to these families. So what I can say is that there's been a lot of solidarity over over the past period in Lebanon. Among this community spirit, camaraderie and banding together, there's still an underlying current of anger. Because we are fed up. Everybody is fed up. Everybody is really, really, really angry. Some are unfortunately unable to express how angry they are. That's Bassam again. His feelings of anger are shared by many Lebanese. Protests started in the country last October against the corrupt political elite and their mismanagement of the country's affairs. I was uh, fully active and actively covering the October 17th revolution and became strongly affiliated and struck several friendships with many members of civil society and civil society groups and organizations. And since the explosion happened until today, uh, friends, neighbors, relatives, colleagues, journalists, even a few politicians, everybody is extremely, extremely outraged and angry. Uh, we just simply want to get rid of this whole uh, bunch of corrupt ruling elite that have been making us live in in probably the world's biggest cage. Uh, We're kidnapped. Our freedom of expression is being kidnapped. We're being harassed and exploited left, right and sent in in, in any way, you name it. Whether it be uh, through the phone, on WhatsApp, uh, social media, in the streets, through our writing as reporters or through our broadcast reporting or television reporting or just standing at the side of the street, just looking at someone uh, who's probably affiliated to any political party of, of the ruling elite, current ruling elite, everybody is extremely outraged. We just want, I mean, we feel like that there is some sort of, of a cancerous thing that is running in our system and we need a surgical strike to get rid of it and uproot it from its roots, from down deep its roots. It's, it's really frustrating. We just want to move on with our lives and live peacefully with harmony, for whatever period is left for us or for our families and our beloved ones and our children and the, and the upcoming generation. Zina is one of that next generation. She also attended the demonstrations in October 2019 and has been at the protests sparked by the blast. But the response of the riot police after the explosion, which included firing live rounds of ammunition, mean that she doesn't feel safe to protest. On August 13, MPs voted for a state of emergency massively increasing the powers of the military. Activists and protesters worry that the army will use this to crack down. 
I went to one on Saturday. It was the first one. And within an hour, the entire area was drenched in tear gas. I actually experienced tear gas myself. It's not very pleasant. Um, but everyone was really excited to fight for their country and to fight for justice. And I think that what differentiates the event on Saturday and the, the revolution that was happening in October was that there was real, real anger this time. And there was, there was grief and there was sorrow and there was guilt and there was really intense emotions. And every day for the, since Saturday, there's practically another revolution happening in downtown and it, and get, and got really, really violent. So I'm unable to attend at the moment because it's really violent and because people are getting shot and they're, they're throwing small, like tiny bombs on people and tear gas. Along with the anger, there are feelings of grief, not just for the dead and the wounded, but for the city of Beirut and for Lebanon itself. Lebanon is in a dire situation. The economy is in tatters, as is its reputation in the international community. When President Macron rallied the international community to send aid to Lebanon, he was clear that it must go to the Lebanese people and not to the government. Beyond the explosion, we know that the crisis here is deep and it requires a historical responsibility of the political class. It is a political, moral, economic and financial crisis whose first victims are the Lebanese people. Likewise, German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas, during his visit to Beirut, said that Lebanon has to fight corruption in order to receive aid. Other than that, we hope that the responsible politicians have understood the sign of the times. The rage of the people is understandable. I think everyone in Lebanon has to recognize that things cannot continue like this. This country needs big reforms. Bassem is hopeful that this aid will be directed to the right place. We hope that the money would be, whatever was raised in funds and support and aid materials, would be channeled through the proper and safe channels, not through the official channels or the political channels, uh, so that the corrupt politicians or the corrupt elites who are ruling or running the administration wouldn't have access to that money. Because uh, our experience with such donations being collected and trying to spread the money or distribute the money Unfortunately, in the past, we've had a very, very bad and bitter experience because the money or the donations were, were unfortunately channeled to the pockets of several uh, corrupt politicians. So we hope and pray to God that now those funds raised be paid directly to the people and nobody else. In the midst of the grief, what hope do people have? This question is an emotive one for Bassam. I lived in, in, in the U I lived in the UAE 18 years. I worked as a journalist with all my heart. I came back to Lebanon, uh, tried to be my own boss, tried to start my own private business, uh, just like many other friends and relatives. I will never lose hope. Hope is always there, whether it be because of, of what we studied, of who he, of who we are, of uh, our, our openness, our mobility, our freedom, I don't know, uh, many of, of, of uh, friends and colleagues, uh, relatives, what makes us survive is hope. Just today morning I was uh, with a friend speaking of, of, on WhatsApp. I mean, uh, I just told that friend that imagine 
the Lebanese people now are left in a cage with a very, very ferocious uh, lion attacking them without any form of, of weapons to defend themselves. The only weapon we have is, is hope. For Marianne, what she's seen after the blast has given her hope for the future of Lebanon. People of Beirut have been struggling and I have a lot of hope in um, children and young people because what we're seeing today on the streets of Beirut is quite impressive. We are seeing children, young people leading the change that is happening on the ground. Um, So I see them as um, very active agents of change that are leading the response. Um, They are showing the world that uh, young people know what they want, that young people are able to reconstruct their city, that they are able to make the change, and all they need is some support from our side. And then they would be able to reconstruct a whole city. So I have a lot of hope in that. Zina is one of those younger people. What hope does she have for the future of her country? Until these people leave or until their parties dissolve, I don't really think much will change in the country. Nevertheless, I think that that this is the start of something new, I hope, of a better future, I hope, as well. But for now, I'm not really sure that citizens are going to get what they want because there's so much work to do before being able to change anything. In a country in which days after the resignation of Hassan Diab, politicians scrambled to find viable names for the next prime minister, we asked Zina who she thought could fix Lebanon. I want to say that my generation can fix Lebanon, and I'm sure that they can, but I really believe that it's, it's bigger than just us being able to change because the corruption is so outdated and it's so old and it's and it's been over 40 years that it's been there so how much can we really do if things don't change from the core if our base is not broken how are we supposed to change things i don't know i think i think that as adults as young adults at least my generation were able to initiate a certain movement we're able to raise awareness but Can we actually change something? I'm not really sure. I think things need to change from, I don't know, from the base. It has to change from the start. We need to go back 30, 40 years and undo the mistakes of these people to be able to build something new. As Lebanon reels from the loss of Beirut and looks to the next generation, the hope is that it can provide them with a livelihood and prosperity. Otherwise, as with so many generations before, the country may risk losing the very people that offer so much hope. Beirut and like Lebanon has always been home. And whenever we travel and come back, Beirut was the place we'd go back to because it was our home, we had family there. And now our favorite places are completely destroyed and there's this, there's this, this lingering feeling of fear and of the unknown. So I think that what I'm going to miss the most about Beirut is Beirut being my safe place. Now I have to go build a home outside because I don't feel good in my own country. I only hope that Beirut becomes home again because I can't really imagine myself living here much longer or I can't really imagine myself raising a family here or just living or leading a certain life here because there are no opportunities. But my only hope for Beirut, at least for Lebanon, is to just 
become home once again and a place where I feel safe. This is Beyond the Headlines. I've been your host, James Haynes-Young. Thanks this week to Bassam Zaza, Zina Malas and Marianne Samaha. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. And if you could spare a minute to leave a review, it really helps. This episode was produced by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison with additional assistance from Aya Iskandarani.